Welcome to the 24th episode of the Endurance Asia podcast and this week we are joined by P.S. Sim, a Singaporean lady who is well on her way to completing the seven summits, having knocked the bastard off and, uh, and summited Everest in the, uh, in the 2019 season. Um, we caught up a, a couple of weeks ago just in the sort of midst of um of the uh of the coronavirus kicking off around the world so we're a bit delayed in getting this out uh, both Rick and I have uh, have had to focus on on work for the last couple of weeks which I'm sure for many of you has been tumultuous and uh, and pretty uncertain but um yeah we're all going to pull together and and with that we've uh, we've we've not um managed to get together and record the outro but uh in in place of that we're going to have a bit of an excerpt from uh from the race base asia podcast the um and uh and a little bit from uh, from from nick timworth who very sadly passed away a few weeks back um and it was his birthday last week so we'd like to uh like to commemorate that and uh, and a bit of a memory of um of uh, of mr nick timworth and uh yeah shout out to the race base asia crew and actually all of those race directors around the around asia and around the world that are um obviously having to postpone races for for the foreseeable future um we will um yeah we're, we're hoping that um that the, the race scene gets back online in the in the summer months um we've got a yeah i know that the the red dot running are, are still going to be um looking to to run the um the backyard beach ultra um in the uh in, in june time that that event is going to be less than less than 250 people so they're still looking to uh to to proceed with that so fingers crossed that gets to go ahead but um but yeah um, thoughts with everyone out there let's uh, let's pull together um, for those in Singapore we are still able to get out for a run obviously you should um, maintain social distancing for those that are staying indoors trying to keep your um, keep your sort of mental fortitude up uh, I know it must be tough um, but uh, but yeah follow Alessandro Sherpa I don't know you should uh, a previous podcast guest you should um, check out him on the socials Running 4K around his uh, around his front room, obviously being an uh, Italian national, he has um, is, is sort of yeah, Italy has been hit hardest around the world, and it's it's very close to home for him. So he's a huge proponent for everyone to to stay at home where possible and encourage social distancing. Um, yeah, so yeah, I recommend following him and. Uh, um, and checking out what 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 he's up to, but uh, yeah, with that, let's uh, let's hand over to Pia Sim, amazing lady. Um, just uh, this, we wanted to kind of publish this at the week of um, uh, of National Women's Day, but we're a bit delayed. Um, but what a phenomenal, phenomenal lady! She's gone from twenty years ago and DNFing, getting to Everest Base Camp EBC, um, to twenty years later getting to the summit and uh and 
to proceed with um, with, with uh, completing the, um, the the seven summits challenge, which is uh, um, which is her one of her major goals. So with that, let's pass over to PS Sim. Like the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Okay. Hey, P.S. Welcome to the <laughs> Endurance Asia podcast. Thanks, Scott. Hey. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's so good to have you on. I've um, I've heard about you a lot in the uh, in the past, and we're just really pleased that you could come and come and join us in the podcast to share share your story. And like, quite a story is right. Um, <laughs> you have uh, a pretty amazing track record in a lot a lot of ultras, but I suppose conquering six of the seven summits must be like I think um, I don't think there's too many um, Singaporean ladies to have uh, to have checked off the seven summits <laughs> like how many uh, how many are there before you um, so in Singapore I think there are only two who have finished so one is Jane um, uh, J- Jane Lee um, so Jane finished that and then uh, Sui Chow um, who's, who's one of the most famous adventurers in Singapore uh, um, mountaineers as well so yeah. he finished the seven summits as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So two, two person. And, and I suppose we can start there actually. So uh, okay. like when, um, yeah, I, I, I knew of you from having summited Everest last year. I'd heard from you about you beforehand, but, but last year in, uh, in 2019, yep. um, you, you conquered Everest. Uh, but your story goes back way further than that. Like <laughs> how, how long is it that you've been trying to like knock the bastard off for, uh, uh, as, the, as they say? Um, so, so I wouldn't use the word conquer, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's really summiting and, and being there on the mountain. Um, it's been 15 years in the making. So I started off with the idea uh, when I first joined the Singapore Women's Everest team. So they had a selection ad in the papers to say they're forming a team and like inviting people to join. So I put in an application and was on the training team. I think we had about 16 odd um, ladies, but eventually the, the selection sort of narrowed it down to six of them who, who went. Um, so that was how I started on the journey. I mean, so yeah. prior to that point, you, you hadn't had you any mountaineering experience? No, I. I went trekking, like I went to EBC um, yep. before that and actually I, that was really miserable. And at that point, I thought to myself, like, I'm never coming back. <laughs> what <laughs> but, year was that? Who knows? Um, like maybe 2000, thereabouts. Okay. Yeah. So you'd, you'd been there in the sort of like surrounded by the high altitude mountains. Yeah, and traumatized. <laughs> what was so <laughs> traumatic about it? Um, I think back then there were not many people who tracked or climbed and I kind of went in without really knowing what to expect, how to train for it. So it was really miserable. Um, and you prob- probably hear this from runners as well. Every time we go into a race and we're like, we're not coming back. And then the next thing you know, you sign up for one more race. So yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so that was about year 2000. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you saw the ad in the paper for uh, to pull to, together to form the team. Yeah. yeah, the first female team to yeah. to, to, to I say, okay, I won't say conquer, but to summit uh, summit yeah, Everest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you just missed out on the final six. There, what what did um, um, what what did that feel like? Not to make the final team. Um, it was quite demoralizing in a way, but I think on hindsight, it's also. It was a valuable lesson because I held on to the idea of wanting to climb and also that sparked my kind of interest in mountaineering and so I I 
I stayed on in that spot actually um, yeah. over the years, and so 15 years eventually I made it. <laughs> so a team of, there was an original team of 16. This is back in 2004 yeah. that they uh, that were effectively trialing out for the yeah. summit team. Yeah. Um, what did that elimination process look like, or, or a selection right. process, shall I say? Um, we had a team of uh, a couple of coaches. So these were people from the men's team, like very experienced uh, climbers, adventurers. So they were kind of like the mentors and also helping to look at the selection. Um, we did training peaks. Um, I think one in Mera Peak in Nepal and yeah. a couple of others, uh, if I recall. So I think so it's all it's, sixteen of you. Yeah, mirror peak together. So so along the way, um, it's just assessing each individual on your the ability, aptitude, etc. How how we adapt to the the climb? Did we finish the climb, etc. Yeah. So very um, physical kind of assessment. It's yeah. a beautiful. I wouldn't say a beautiful peak in itself, mirror peak, but it's beautiful views from yeah. from the summit. Right, you're surrounded yeah. by. Probably eight or nine of the eight thousanders. Yeah. yeah. Have, have you been there? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and did you all did you all summit it? Uh, no. So so I didn't finish Mara Peak. Um, that was one of the selections. Yeah. yeah I guess probably. I I can't recall what else we did after that, but. Um, so those was one of the data points. Yeah. yeah. What was it? Um, what was it? Climbing Mara Peak because. Um, I'm almost like more interested in some of the like DNFs people have. It's often a question that we ask, like <laughs> what, what, what are the DNF? Because I think like you learn so yeah. much from it. But yeah. back, back at that very, that would have been one of your first sort of yeah. like, um, like decent, but like a pretty high altitude though. Yeah. So what was it you learned um, on, um, on Mirror Peak? I think it's... Because it's six and a half thousand meters, yeah. isn't it? So you're, you're definitely feeling the effects of altitude. That and also wondering what am I doing here? Kind of like, do I really like this camping lifestyle, being out in the cold or snow? I mean, um, to also say that at that point in time, the gear wasn't, probably wasn't like tip top as the gear that we have now. Um, maybe I should have invested more in, but, but it was that whole coming together of like feeling, um, just questioning myself whether I really like being there in the outdoors in, in that kind of um, staying in the tent for prolonged days, etc. Um, not and being away from the comforts. So a lot of learning about self. Um, but like you said, Mara wasn't the first kind of DNF and through each one, we, we do learn a bit more about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the um, the selection process um, went ahead, and actually mm. of the um, of the six women of that team, you have like the likes of Jan Sue and J- mm. uh, Jane Lee, mm-hmm. who are like pretty like legends in the Singapore uh, <laughs> in, like mountaineering endurance yeah. community. And you you yourself you, you missed out on that. I think five of those of uh, six women summited um, yes, uh, Everest. Yes, five, five of them got. They did. They climbed Choyo together yes. as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and what did it feel like actually seeing them? Sorry, I can, I'm sure you would oh, have been so, so proud. proud. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I recall I wrote a letter to the forum page. It got published <laughs> after they submitted. But yeah, so proud. Because we were working together quite a bit, trying to get sponsorships, getting the whole thing together. Like it's never been done before. So that whole preparation and everything along the way, that was quite memorable. And you still felt fully like their their success was also your success I mean, having been yeah, part of the it's team. It's like the first team, women's team that's on. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously 
it sort of lit a fire inside you that you <laughs> wanted to like be on top of uh, of Everest at, at that point. So wh- where did you go from there then? So after um, after seeing mm. that team summit, what what made you sort of like persevere with mountaineering and and right. eventually make a career of it? Um, career? Well, well I, I mean, sure. like a, it's certainly <laughs> like a maybe not paid career, but yeah. like. A, um, well, actually, it wasn't that smooth sailing after that because uh, after I left the team, I, I still I continued climbing, but um, there were a number of no summits. So in the racing lingo, we call it DNF, right? Like not finishing. Um, but in races, you could do a lot more races and, and manage that data and statistics. But for climbing, I could probably just do one climb a year. So I think I had a, a spate of about seven years or so um, between 2007 to 2014, thereabouts, where I was um, like attempting a climb and not finishing it for various reasons. So that was really demoralizing. And I was really questioning myself, like, am I really suited for it? Yeah, those kind of self-doubts. What were the what were the reasons that you weren't you weren't summiting? I mean, various things come into it. Whether yeah. it be your team, whether it be the weather, there's so many yep. things that can come into. What what were and how did you sort of like process um, mm. there? Not not summiting on those occasions. Um, so there were like you said, there were various reasons, like the the weather, the just getting enough strength, conditioning. So maybe I wasn't training enough. And I think I would say ten years ago, I probably. Um, were not as fit as I am today so that whole conditioning and and maybe just having to to accept that I needed to train more Um, and but I I kind of shifted from mountaineering to doing other endurance sports and on hindsight I think maybe that set a good like foundation for me today yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when did that shift happen then? And sort of um, about 2007, 2008. So that was how I got into ultra running, did um, Ironman, triathlon, stuff like that, just to kind of shift gear, but at the same time also holding that fascination that um, I still want to try to climb. And even though each each time I tried, it wasn't, it didn't work out that well, but I still kept trying. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was the what was the first one that you did summit that was uh, the that that kind of broke. Yeah. Um, twenty fourteen Elbrus. So that's in in Europe. Um, Russia. Yeah, yeah Russia. Yeah. So that kind of was a bit of a high point. Um, there was a peak that I attempted a few times, Aconcagua in Argentina. Yeah. So that I had to do it three times before I cleared. <laughs> right. Wow. So it's which um. So actually, like, cause yeah, from the Mirror Peak, the attempt was, would have been around the two thousand and four, two thousand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and in that seven years after, you attempted quite a few other peaks um, around uh, around Nepal in Asia. and China. Yeah. yeah. So I went to Musta Atta. That's cl- about a seven thousand meters peak. Um, did a couple of the lower trekking peaks in Nepal. Um, there was one Mao Chola in in China. So. Yeah, mostly and, in this region. And did you summit some of those? Like, what was your... Um, I think I summited some of the 5,000 meter ones. Yeah. Uh, not so much the 6,000 meter ones. Yeah. Or higher. Yeah. And yeah. so your first sort of like big... Um, oh, well, I think El like, Bruce is like five and a half, five, yeah. six, isn't but, it? So, but it was a nice kind of like mental brick. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that was a. Did you when you attempted El Bruce? Was that because it's obviously one of the seven, seven mm. summits? Mm. Did, so did you go after it thinking that I think you'd already done Kilimanjaro yeah. back in two thousand or something, yeah. right? But mm. um, at what point did you realise that actually you could try and take on the seven summits? Um, after Denali and Aconcagua. So so I did Elbrus, and then after that I went on to do Denali, um, and finally clearing Aconcagua. So one of the the kind of pact I made to myself uh, was that I would only try Everest if I cleared Aconcagua. Why was that? Because that's my third time back there yeah. um, in the mountain, and it was almost like, okay, if I can't get up Acon, I'm not going to do Everest. Yeah. So so there was a bit of like a challenge to myself. Yeah, and so what years did you attempt it? Because as you say, like mm. you can't. The challenge with mountaineering, like compared to like ultra running, is if I mean, obviously, a lot of races you can are only annual. So if you yeah. DNF one, you can only go back the next year. Yeah. But at the same time, you can you do a so lot many of other races, races yep. to keep. But yeah. with mountaineering, it's like you could do one, maybe two. Yeah. I suppose, but realistically, when you've got a day job and yeah. like the amount of cost <laughs> and also just the amount of preparation and and, yep. the, and the seasons as well. Yeah. Maximum sort of two per season. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do one and try to keep your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with Aconcagua, you'd actually um, yeah. What were the years? That I you think attempted? I tried in twenty. 10 or 11 I can't remember the first one and then 2015 and then finally in 2017 right yeah okay so, so, so it's actually quite a big window that you would so it wasn't until 2017 that you actually realised that you had a real chance yeah. of of doing the seven summits or at yeah. least you were going to go after it properly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it was kind of trying along the way and then after that it was uh, okay let's finish it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so once you'd done Aconcagua, you and at that point you had mm-hmm. um, of of the seven summits mm. you had um, you had done uh, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Elbrus, um, Denali, yep. in America, in America, and yeah, it's in Alaska, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 beautiful. Yeah, I've heard it's great. What made it so beautiful? Um, just the whole idea of being in like, it's, it's white throughout. You're on you land on a glacier. There's snow everywhere, no trees, no plants. It's just white. Um, it's amazing. I mean, when people say the Eskimos have 50 words to describe snow, I think it, it really made sense when we were there because it's one kind of snow or a different type of snow and uh, it's just amazing. I've, I've not seen any um, scenery or landscape like that. Yeah, and what, what kind of team were you with there? Was it, um, did um, you just sign up to a guided uh, um, a guided? Yeah, so it was an international um, kind of expedition team yeah. makes people yep. yeah 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 and so yeah that was the four and then the f- uh, and, and then Aconcagua and then Aconcagua yeah. would have been the fifth so by that point you've yep. just got you've got the kind of one or two easiest well, I, well the uh, Australia one uh, yeah Kosciuszko is like the easiest of yeah. all of them but then you've got Carson's Pyramid yep. which is in Papua New Guinea yes. right which yep. is also like r- it's yeah, what's the, for those that don't know, so obviously right. it's the seven summits in uh, the mm-hmm. highest mountains in each continent. Mm-hmm. But um, what with Asia and Oceania are sort of considered mm-hmm. one... In fact, no, so, sorry, so like Everest is counting the Asia one, yes, isn't it? Yes, and so Oceania ocean, yep. is kind of... Uh, it's 
either Carson's Pyramid, which is in um, Papua. Papua New Guinea, yep. or what? What Cold is Cozy. the deliberation, or like what is the between those two? Which one is the Oceanus? Oh, um, I think it depends on how they define continent and whether it's a landmass, like standalone, some technical, yeah, geographical um, definition. But I think most people would try to do both. Um, some people would do one or the other, and it's, it's still counted as the seven summits. But if you w- want to cover all grounds, um, you'll try to do both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the uh, Carson's Pyramid is actually mm. really challenging to get to, is that right? Yeah, um, it's very secluded. Um, the permits are not so easy to get and uh, the regulations there are very strict um, because of the mining activities there. Right. And, and the climb customs permit is kind of like right there next to the world's largest gold mine. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's difficult to get to. I think in the past, people tracked in, but then there were all the like, tribal um, issues of trying to cut through tribal lands and stuff like that. Quite a physical danger as well. Um, how how like long does it take to get to, like even to base camp? Tracking in, I can't recall, maybe like, 10 days or so I, I didn't track in we flew in by helicopter by helicopter yeah okay, to the base go. camp yeah, yeah. but even that itself was tricky um, I was stuck 7 days in, in town just waiting for uh, the window to clear and, and for the heli to be able to fly in yeah right okay so the climb itself is really short maybe 2 days just yeah. up and down but uh, getting into the base camp and getting out of base camp is a challenge yeah yeah, yeah. So, um, Carson's period, Kosciuszko, like you had six uh, or sort of five of the um, of the seven summits done before. Yeah. Then you the, um, and so Everest was. Um, how long did you plan in for for twenty nine? For because obviously it was twenty nineteen May uh-huh. twenty nineteen season that you went yep. for. So how long had you planned uh, for? Um, so initially, I think I wanted to do it in twenty eighteen. But it was a bit too rush, and well, hindsight is always hundred percent. So on hindsight, I, I thought twenty nineteen was uh, it worked out a lot better as well. It gave me more time to prepare for it. Um, so the actual planning took about one and a half years, also. Yeah. Yeah. Just to psych myself and say yes, I'm going to try it. Yeah. It wasn't a definitely wasn't an easy decision to make. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you had like a pretty good support network around you for the give you <laughs> advice. Was like asking a lot of people, what should I do? Um, so I was deliberating between going to Choyu first, then Everest, or skipping Choyu and going like direct and to attempt Everest. So yeah. just weighing the two pros and cons. And yeah. obviously, you decided to go straight for Everest. What oh, was, no, I did Choyu. You, you climbed Choyu yeah. beforehand. Yeah, so I did Choyu in 2018. Okay. Uh, instead of trying to do Everest in 2018 and then I pushed Everest like back a year got you hmm. so um, and what was the decision making process around around doing Choyo first um, so the people I spoke to most of them uh, so I spoke to the, the ones who had climbed Everest before me and most of them would recommend doing Choyu as a kind of pre-training it's almost like a full dress rehearsal but in a much um kind of easier environment. Of course, I say easier is relative because it's still a, a decent 8,000 Yeah, it's the 8, sixth highest mile. mountain yeah. in the world, 8,200 or something, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most people... But it's also known as being like the least 
technical yeah. of the 8000s yeah. yeah which is why it's a good kind of a full dress rehearsal just knowing how my body would react to altitude to using oxygen to even even camping for 5 weeks yeah. like just all that you know conditioning it it was a good decision and what did you learn from the from the Chuyo one and what was the what was your biggest learnings from um oxygen was really good <laughs> yeah. um because on Chuyo we had to use oxygen above 7000 meters i oh, mean is that i mean right? that's that's when usually you start using oxygen the supplemental oxygen interesting so yeah. what i learned was um i'm i'm quite slow acclimatizing because i have mild thalassemia um you have what sorry mild thalassemia So where where What's the red blood cells don't produce enough, um, and during the acclimatization, I I think naturally my body doesn't produce enough and and creating enough oxygen in that sense. Uh, but once I used the supplemental oxygen, that felt really different. So I think uh, one of the biggest takeaway for myself was um, not to be kind of hindered by by the slower pace going up. because i knew how i would be responding to oxygen after that so it it was quite encouraging at least it on average it didn't make me feel like nervous or anything yeah 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 and um what kind of team were you in um with um uh with on your choyo so was that was it a singaporean team or an like or, or oh, was it just signed up um, to a main group it was an international team yeah. uh with the same outfitter climbing the seven summits Uh, that's the name of the company. Yeah. Um, so I was climbing with three other guys, two of whom, uh, plus myself, we summited, and then all three of us went on to Everest the next year. So it was like oh, good fun. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, meeting that's up again. really cool. And then you were able to sort of like build a team in environment. Yeah, so well. we kind of know knew each other from the year before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Choyo has actually been on my bucket list for yeah. about six or seven years. Yeah, I'm like really and um, yeah. Wait, really. When are you attempting? Oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've um, I, I, yeah, it's just the this kind of cost from it, and also the um, the uh, yeah. The time away. It's just yeah. It's I will do it. It's like on my bucket list, right? But also, I'm not. I'm not a mountaineer as well, no. so I don't. Um, yeah, but <laughs> you I, start somewhere. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've done Mira Peep, and uh, and yeah, so Choyo is up there. But uh, is it like a beautiful mountain in itself mm. to be able to? Um, it's in Tibet, and they don't issue that many permits, so it's relatively quiet. Um, compared to being on Everest, it's it's way like you. On Choyo, you probably know. All the other teams that's around you, um, much fewer people. You get a much quieter mountain, a lot of space. You you have the mountain to yourself in a way. Um, very beautiful. And then when you get to the summit, you see Everest, Lhotse, and Nupse from across. That was yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So um, that must have been like really uh, like massively helped your confidence summiting Choyo. Yeah. Um, what was recovery like afterwards for like getting up to eight thousand meters? Because like, um, you would have done it in, in May twenty eighteen mm-hmm. uh, that season, and then as soon as you oh, come off Choyu for Choyu, or uh, did you October. do the winter season? You did the the, the, the autumn season. The autumn season. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's September to October. Yeah. Okay. So then coming down, you knew you had like six months to prepare for yeah. Everest. So like, what was going through that sort of six month period? Um, coming off Choyu, I. Th- I think 
I took about one month just like lazing around. Didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to go out running. Um, but after that, I got back into my racing kind of calendar, um, doing the ultras, etc. And then picking up for Everest, like more specific tra- training for Everest, maybe in about end February, March, um, with the load training and all that. Yeah. But in between, I, I've got my ultras to kind of keep that foundation going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm keen to sort of get into the ultra side as well. We've got had a lot of ultra runners on the podcast, a lot of right. ultra runners that um, that listen. But um, but actually, what I'm quite interested to know is how do you train for something like Everest in Singapore? in Singapore? Yeah. Um, like how we all train at Bukit Timah. Um, I'm not sure. Have you been there? I have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> have no, times, yeah. no ultra runners, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all of us train. So I've actually done an Everest thing on. Oh yes, uh, yes. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. So was that running or cycling? That was running. Yeah, Run, yeah, yeah. Running I've Everest done a cycling thing. on Faber, but I like running on. Yeah, uh, on yeah. Team or so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I read that. But I've also seen like uh, Joanne like yep. so many times up there <laughs> as well. Just as like I know her as one. Well, like literally every time you're there, she's yeah. stomping up and down. Yeah. Um, but so, how would you and? So there's, it's like 163 meters. So that what, like, as a training session, would it be the amount of times would you be doing a heavy pack? Mm. Like, what would the training sessions look so, like? So for me, when I was training for Choyu and Everest, um, it's mostly about get putting the anchor weights on and anchor with the weights. anchor weights plus the heavy backpack. So that's really to to kind of um, simulate the kind of conditions that we would be having in the mountains. So it's not going after speed per se um well can be too slow but just being comfortable on the duration leg time uh foot on the ground and as well as the weights so the anchor weights um when i was in singapore i used 3.5 each side so that's 7 kg on the anchors and i had about 23 25 kg backpack um just going up and down the bucket team so that's like total of 30 kg extra yeah like 32 32 kg yeah. of extra weight yeah um, and you, would you use the same pack that you would take yes to, okay, yes so you get using, like, used to carrying yeah how much do you weigh if you don't mind me asking yeah, yeah about 50 <laughs> about 50 so yeah, literally so you're doing than... almost like two-thirds of your own weight that yeah you'd be carrying up and down so um so i want to qualify on the mountains I didn't have to carry as much weight, yeah. but it's really to overcompensate for the altitudes and, and that whole, you know, being tired in the mountains, etc. So I was overcompensating for that. Sure, because yeah. you've got like a third of the oxygen at the, yeah. well, I think at like six, uh, like six seven, uh, 6,000 meters, probably about half the oxygen, right? And up to... Yeah, and then at the top, you get a third. A also. third, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but, I, but I actually had more weight while I was training for Denali. Um, because of the sled pulling on the snow. So on Denali, you have to pull the sled and, and going through the glacier. Right. So for that, I had like 27 kg backpack and 10 kg on the ankles. That's crazy. That's, that was, that's the highest I've, I've ever gone. Like, yeah. <laughs> I could. That's crazy. Like, because if, if equivalent, like I weighed like roughly 80, 80 kilos. So I'd have to like, my pack would be equivalent to 50, 50 kg. Maybe. Is, is that yeah. the actual idea? Like you have to do two thirds of your own? No, of no, your no. It's, it's just kind of anticipating what load you, you would have carrying, to carry. Yeah. And then, and and then adding in X. the altitude um, where you feel a lot more tired and not as fit or strong. Yeah. yeah. 
that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I was like, do not ask me to put down my pack because I cannot lift it up anymore. <laughs> yeah. So how many, on a, like a big training session, mm. you've got, um, yeah, 25 kg pack, 7 kg ankle weights. Yeah. Um, how long would your training session be? What, and how many summits um, would you do? few hours really uh, so I'm not very structured in terms of my training it's really um, how I feel on the actual day and the time I have available um, but usually two three hours minimally just going up and down um, the sets of stairs that we have at Bukit Timah so not just the summit but um, um, Rungas which is the other set and then there's a long one where the metal steps are yeah. the, the north loop so I don't do that for the Everest training um, simply because I needed the poles for for the weight that I was carrying and the poles would get stuck on the metal steps Got you, so yeah. I did the other stairs um, circuit yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and how many laps would you do in a session like how um, many like so you'd spend like two or three hours so I do Maybe two or three on the summit, up yeah. down, and then moving on to Rungas, another three or four or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and do you have like a coach or anyone that helped you out with or like advised you on your training routine? Um, not for the climb, but recently I signed up with Andy. Um, you just interviewed yes, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, from Andy Mal. Dubois. Yeah. So that's for my running. Yeah. Um, coach for running, but not for climbing. But so if you, when, you, when you were prepping for Everest, you didn't have, I mean, obviously you're, uh, you've got a really good support network around you, but they, mm. you, don't ha- you didn't have someone that gave you a structured training plan? Or no, I, I read the book by Steve House, um, Uphill Training. I Uphill think. Training, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I read it, but I, no, I, I didn't do a very structured training. But um, effectively, you need three types of training, the aerobic training, yeah. which the ultra runs provided. Um, we need some strength training. So I sign up with a gym to do like weights and all that. Yeah. And then very specific. So like the, the Bukit Timah with the weights and all that. Yeah. yeah, got you. And so that six month period from going back from Choyo, there was a month spent on the couch, eating <laughs> potato chips uh, yes. and watching Netflix. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, don't want to do anything. I'm just lying here. I think you're allowed to, you're, You must come down from that kind of expedition as being like pretty depleted as well, right? Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say I was physically like depleted, but maybe it was more mentally like I just needed a break or something. Yeah. So the body kind of refuses to get anything else done. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, it's nice sleeping here and just lazing around. But then... You'd signed up for every so that must have been sort of like October, November time that you uh, that you did Choyo. Mm-hmm. You got six months to prepare for Everest. Yeah, thereabouts, less it, than that. <laughs> it, it's not. Um, it's one of these things, right? That if it, it, you'd not only all everything you'd done had sort of led up to that in terms of mm-hmm. you'd done sort of five of the seven summits. Mm-hmm. You had uh, you'd practiced um, and done a dry run on Choyo. Yeah. And it's not cheap climbing Everest. It's not cheap climbing no, any of these mountains. No. <laughs> but like Everest is, you know, yeah. $50,000 and then everything else, yeah. flights and everything, all the equipment and everything yep. on top of that. You've got to make sure it counts. Yep. So um, you had, you had five, five months of, um, yeah. of training. And what, how were you feeling before, before heading out to Nepal? Um, pretty good, actually. I mean, I had finished all the races that I wanted to do. So, so I was r- racing in... Well, practically every month, uh, right, December, okay. January, 
um, Feb and March. What races were you doing? Uh, I did Hong Kong 100 yep. um, and then Tarawera, yes, uh, the, yeah, the Maula. In Australia, yeah. Uh, New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand, sorry. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then I did Translantau um, yep. in March and then I, I flew off like end of the month. God, you. Yeah. Were you doing those races with, pa- with a heavy pack? No, no, no. Well? no, no. <laughs> you were like properly so, racing. <laughs> so my friends in the trail running community they call my backpack the fridge because they, they, they've seen me going up and down like Bukit Timur with the pack um, no no I was you trail running like proper trail races, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was just proper trail running um, but I mean my aim in those races was really just to enjoy and, and not getting injured yeah yeah and how did you get on in them? Did you, uh, yeah, did you okay, like, finish them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. You, so you weren't like you weren't properly racing. You weren't trying to be at the at the. Point I mean, I wasn't trying to be a hero and dashing down the steps and and of tripping up and falling over or something. So yeah, yeah just yeah. a bit conservative. Yeah. Yeah, and you think sort of trail running was a, it was good preparation for um mm. for like doing hundred k races was good preparation for for getting back into the high altitude. Um, for myself or in general? In general and for you. Yeah. So in general, I think um, obviously the, the person who is attempting would have to be conditioned for these kind of long distance event so that he or she can recover in time. Yeah. Um, so for us who have been running for many years, we, we know it's okay, we can recover. Um, so for myself, I think my trail running background and mountaineering background kind of complements one another quite nicely. Um, in the sports so trail running we know we have to be out there for hours like 24 I'm I'm not a very fast runner so I out there for 20 24 hours 27 hours Um, I think that gives me that mental um, strength to attempt the summits durations because summit days are usually long um, 16 hours 20 hours even so knowing that I have clocked those hours um, more than 20 hours out there it's, it's okay it's yeah. a normal thing that I do quite often it gave me the edge I think yeah, that, yeah. that's interesting I mean, and actually you talk about you, you don't, you're not fast you don't need to be fast when you're climbing big mountains right <laughs> and, but there's no way you're going to be fast like yeah. each step can take a minute <laughs> right? oh so each step I counted um, every step and I would count one to nine one to eight or one to nine, like eight count, before I took the next step. Right. Okay, okay maybe not a minute, but it was like eight count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So effectively, you would be doing like... Um, it was really slow. Yeah, so <laughs> for, for each minute, you would, what would you do? Like uh, four or five steps a, a minute then? Or, maybe. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or sorry, yeah, yeah. If it was eight, eight if you're count. counting seconds, so it's eight or nine seconds. So it's like, take a step. One, two, three for like that pace ah oh, that's yeah. crazy okay so, and, <laughs> just, and just to get the breath like um, back yeah and, and obviously that would depend on what altitude you're at, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. how many seconds in between steps yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah you did three big ultras leading up to, um, to uh, yeah. le- leading up to Everest uh, again and so getting out there did you feel like you were in the, the best possible shape you could be yeah actually um, so I was there feeling quite strong fit healthy everything I was also super obsessed with staying healthy um, so two mantras when I was at Everest one is not to fall sick 
and one is not to fall down. Right. <laughs> getting That's injured. Great advice. So yeah. when it comes to falling sick, obviously, mm-hmm. um, yeah, getting any kind of gastric thing is just not ideal yeah. when you're uh, having to go to the toilet many times yeah. when you've got the diarrhea stuff. If you do, <laughs> you do yeah. <laughs> diarrhea stuff or for um, getting a flu, etc. So we were actually very obsessed with personal hygiene, like hand sanitizing everything. I think. By now, in Singapore, we'd be used to that habit, but uh, last year it wasn't so. So we were like hand sanny um, before we touched the food, before like every, all the time. And then water bottles, um, we don't put them on the tables so that they don't transfer the germs or any dirt onto the dining area, etc. So super obsessed. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, don't fall sick and don't fall down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the second one obviously is pretty important when you're climbing mountains. But but you're talking yeah. about actually just like tripping up or like twisting an ankle. Yeah, yeah, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, how big was the how big was your um, was the team you were um, you went to Everest with? You mentioned there was a couple of people that had climbed Choya yeah. you the year before. Uh, um, yeah. What was the so I like? I climbed with the same company climbing the seven summits. Yeah. Um, I think they had about 20 over clients who were there, but we were split into three kind of big, three subgroups here, and then some private clients. But all in, um, we were looking at about 20-ish clients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, um, it was a pretty interesting season last year, wasn't it? I mean, there was, um, it was probably most well-known for the uh <laughs> the photo uh, yeah the, the i forget who the photo was by actually uh um, nims the, the guy who did the 14 or, or 14 peaks that's yeah. right yeah, yeah yeah um and it was basically of a procession going yeah. up um uh the I, we, I forget what you did the you did the south side of Everest, yeah. right so, um, so so it was the same day that i was up there Right. That photo, yeah. But from what I understand, so did you, um, did, yeah, were you in that procession? Um, I was stuck coming down. So I wasn't stuck going up because I left really early and was ahead of all that long line of traffic. Um, but then when I was coming down, I had to go against traffic. So that was the photo that was like going up and I was coming down. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, let's take it back a little bit. Okay. So, the, um, so in terms of your acclimatization and mm. everything for, um, for last year for Everest, mm-hmm. all went well. You've obviously got to travel through the Kumbu Icefall. I yeah, think quite a few times. How many times did you have to go through it? We went through, I think, four times if I recall yeah and is it as treacherous as like you see on the videos like crossing crevasses on yeah uh, on on ladders that look completely precarious <laughs> like was, was it yeah good? um so yes we've got the crevasses the ice for um Kumbu glacier is always shifting because it is a glacier that's like melting along the way so throughout the season it's shifting and so the crevasses and the fault lines are also shifting um we've got those metal ladders that are strapped so that you could cross, like we see in the photos. But from what I heard um, from the people who go there every year, they said the, the ice has kind of compacted in a way after the major earthquake. Yeah. Um, so those crevasses are not as wide. So our ladders are kind of shorter as well. Um, but nonetheless, it was still challenging. So, so going across the Kumbu Ice for balancing on those ladders and, and going up and down. Yeah. 
Uh, and your um, acclimatization period went mm. really well. Obviously, you didn't fall sick or fall down during yeah. that period. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I was very thankful for that. Uh, yeah. And um, what was the highest you got up to? Was it just camp four as part of your acclimatization? Um, for acclimat- acclimatization, we had to reach camp three, just touch and back down. So that's about 7,000 meters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then. Um, and that would have been your last acclimatization. You would have come all the way back yep. down to base camp before yeah. before setting off on the full summit push. Yeah. Um, and what um, and what day it was? It's always around the like tenth of May or something, isn't it? The, or like for, for, from the actual window to be able to push for the summit between um, like the eighth and twelfth of May normally. There was a window that opened up mid May, if I recall, like sixteen or seventeen of May. Um, but there was a really small window, like a day maybe. So there were small pockets of uh, groups that went up but the main window opened up um, on the 22nd to about 24th May so that was that three-day window where everybody went for it Um, that's that's why that photo was as such like everybody just had to go for the same window roughly how many people do you know were actually attempting the summit that day I think about 200 200 people like total okay so clients Plus the guides and the Sherpas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so your team's plan was to was to head off early on and to beat yeah. the um, yeah beat the initial rush. So we initially set off a day ahead of the the crowds. Um, so you've got everybody at base camp all going for the same window. So we started a day ahead. Um, initially planning to also submit a day ahead, but. It was too windy and I mean, there was no way we could go up. Well, I think there were some, a couple of climbers who attempted on that windy night, um, but most stay put. So I actually spent one extra night at Camp 4, that's 8,000 meters, um, just waiting for the next day and hoping that the, the weather would clear up. Yeah. yeah. And in the tent, you could hear the wind like blasting against the tent. Yeah, maybe it was a good decision not to even try. You might lose a finger or two. I mean, it's just crazy <laughs> when you think back to like going to um, Everest Base Camp back in 2000. Like, oh, is this camping stuff for me? Yeah, it I and, know. Like, I, I didn't even get to Base Camp that, that time. <laughs> you didn't, uh, no. When, you did, it, when to no. meet you see, really? Um, the first time I, I didn't even get to Base Camp. Wow. Yeah. It's like, and then yeah. go forward 20 years, 19 <laughs> years, and there's you. 8,000 meters, camp four, with like a t- crazy winds battering yeah. against the tent, waiting for you to. <laughs> and, and like, it's not a. Literally, no one should be living up there at all. And if you've got to spend another 24 hours, what, what yeah. was going through your mind? Thinking oh, about? that was the worst night um, possible. Worst, I, I say worst in terms of emotional, um, because I, I was in the tent. Um, knowing that I had to stay extra night there and knowing that if the weather doesn't clear up the next day, we will all have to back down because like you said, it's, it's not a place where you spend many nights. Um, so that was the maximum that we could spend there. And so I was praying really, really hard in the tent, like, okay, for the weather to clear up and let's have a shot at this. Because it's, it's the kind of feeling where I know I was fit and healthy and everything, you know, don't fall sick, don't fall down, I was off that, done, checked, um, feeling strong, ready to go for it. And this is like a once a lifetime chance to be there. And then having the weather like not cooperate and that's 
totally out of my control. I was just miserable lying in the tent and, and really praying very hard for, yeah. For the weather window to yeah, come through, yeah. For, for, for us to have a chance at, to go. Because you, you haven't got like the, the mess tent or like, or you haven't got the facilities to like, how, how do you even sort of fuel and feed yourself when you're up there for another 24 hours at Camp 4? Um, we didn't fuel a lot. No. <laughs> um, we had snacks. But in terms of like proper meals, no, because everything you had to like melt the snow just even to get water. So it was really um, not much drinking, not much eating. We were just, all of us were just lying in the tent, sucking oxygen, trying not to move. Yeah, <laughs> like, and the more you move, the more oxygen you're potentially, oh no, I suppose you've got not the... Not too bad, uh, you, the you've got a little set. bit of oxygen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also you just know that Okay, haven't got enough food to stay up here another night. Haven't like yeah. got enough oxygen to be able to like we've got enough for one summit push. So we can't if we use it all up here. Then and really, gonna... I think the body just weakens the longer you stay there. So yeah. even if realistically we wanted to try again, we'll have to get down to maybe camp two or even lower before coming back up again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so eight thousand meters is not a place where you stay and like oh let's stay here and watch the weather like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But to be considered like a, an actual summit, you don't have to. You wouldn't have to have gone all the way back down to base camp to push no, up no, again. No, no, you can. No. You can drop down to a couple of yeah, camps and where you could recover, um, kind of sufficiently, get some food in, and then come back up again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the weather window was opening up. You must have been radioed up from base camp saying, "Okay, we, we're going to go for it the next night." Yeah, and then you had all these people from base camp who were coming up. Because uh, remember, we went one day earlier. So then the next day, all these people were starting to come into Camp 4 and, and filling up the space. Um, they were attempting the summit on the same kind of evening that we were. Yeah. yeah. But also you'd had a bit more time rest. So, we, so you made that knowing that there was Camp 4 was becoming overloaded. Right. You made the decision to sort of get out a bit earlier. What yeah. time did you set off from Camp 4? Um, I think I set off about 5.30 p.m. Okay. Uh, in the evening. Yeah, yeah, so which is actually quite early, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah, because in the past, people would set off at 9 p.m. or even 11 p.m. in the days when, you know, there were not that many climbers. Yeah. 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 So 5.30 was really early. Typical Singaporean, like, kiasu, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to get started. <laughs> I, I think by that time, we were all very, um, there was a lot of pent-up energy and, and just wanting to if we could have a go at this, let's go. Yeah. So, yeah. And so you, you set off, there can't have been too many people ahead of you when you'd set off. No, um, maybe about 20. Yeah. 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 10 or 20. Uh, and was it, um, was it plain sailing to the summit there? I mean, you're, so 8,000, you've got like, you know, mm. 850 meters to go, but like, mm -hmm. what was the, t what time did you end up reaching the summit? Um, I reached the summit at 3 a.m. Okay. in the dark yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a downside but um, so we took about nine and a half hours yeah, yeah. to get there um, quite smooth sailing it, it was a very nice night actually very different from the night before with the winds that night that we were up there it was it was kind of normal um, no like blasting winds or anything the moon was out very beautiful so there was a reasonable amount of visibility then if it was, was it if, if it yeah. were, the moon was out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. clear skies like perfect 
Oh, beautiful. But you yeah. also, you're like, it's, you don't have the amazing views if the sun hasn't risen. It's no, right. no. But, um, I, yeah. I had a peak of Tibet on the other side of um, where I was at the summit. Like yeah. you could make out Tibet and the shadows over the other side. But yeah, I, I didn't get the full bright sunshine view. Yeah. And how yeah. long did you spend at the summit before you did the turnaround? Maybe about... It must have been pretty cold as well. 20 like minutes. Like 3.30 yeah. in the morning. Like if, you, if you're sitting around for too long. Yeah. Um... I stopped there for about 20 minutes, just taking pictures. It, it was still windy at the top. Uh, it was, it was well, normal. It wasn't uh, too strong, but it was still very cold. So, like, things were flying around. My flag wouldn't hold, stay up properly because it was just, like, flying in the wind, <laughs> stuff like that, yeah. Uh, and so, 20 minutes, turn around. And when did you start meeting, like, the crowds of people oh, coming straight up? away. Yeah. Because the, the line, when I started at 5.30, it, it just continued on and on. So it wasn't like I started at 5.30 and other people yeah. came a few hours later. It was, it was non-stop. So the minute I turned around, there were people coming up. And obviously there's, there's ropes have been set, mm. um, but you're climbing down on the same rope people yeah. are climbing up on. So yeah. you're consistently having to clip in, clip <laughs> yes. out of the main rope, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. That must be fucking precarious. Like that <laughs> must scare the hell yeah. out of you. Like, uh, yeah. So I was short roped as well um, by my Sherpa yeah. from behind. So I was like passing people and he was also passing people. So um, at one point you, you would always be, one of you would be clipped in yes. at one point. So there would never be a point where you're both clipped out. No, 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 sure. it yeah. couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you'd be clipped in. So initially, I, I think coming down, I realized there were a um, few types of people, the helpful ones who would help you clip in because I was passing them and they would help to maybe bring my carabiner to the rope or, or try to make some space for me to like maneuver. And then there were those who were totally oblivious to what's happening. I think they were maybe zoned out or something. And people who just stood in the way and not like, yeah, no reactions. So it was kind of challenging coming down um, because the path that we were standing on is a little bit bigger than this table, maybe one and a half of this table. Yeah, it's so like a meter wide or so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone was in like our puffy down jackets with the oxygen tank, uh, with the ice axe hanging outside the backpack. So I had to be careful not to twist myself onto the ice axes as I was coming down and not to get my oxygen tube like hooked onto somebody else's ice axe or something and yeah, cut yeah. my tube. Yeah. So we had that ledge that we were all standing on um, and off that ledge is just straight down, slide, yeah, down to Nepal. The others, on the other side, you slide down into Tibet. So just that ledge for two-way traffic. And you must, have, as you say, you were coming down, and you must have realised that some people helped you, some people didn't. Mm. But knowing that they're all moving even slower up as you were going down, mm. obviously. Mm. Mm. But what was your going through your mind? Were you thinking, wow? The, at what point you realize that these people aren't going to make it they're not going to make their turnaround time or like uh you must have been quite sort of thinking about people going up and realizing um, that, that uh, uh, a shit show was about to ensue um actually no i didn't think that they were not going to meet their turnaround time or anything i, I was just being focused uh, a lot on getting down clipping in stepping around people and just making my way one by one past the people um, until I got to somewhere near the balcony that's about 8,200 meters and then the sun came up 
uh, that's about 6 a.m., 5.30, 6 a.m. Then I could see the whole view. And I realized that there were still people coming up from at that point. So that must have been quite late for them. Yeah. Um, but we were lucky because that day, um, the weather held for the whole day. So there wasn't a f- kind of a hard turnaround time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, and so you got, and then you were like straight down to um, to camp two from there, or yeah. and then have a have a sleep before heading back down to base camp. Or? Yeah, so I got down to camp four at eight a.m. Still lots of time, like had a whole day. Um, then we had a bit of a rest, and then went down to camp two. Yeah. Um, slept over, then went back down to base camp the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what was the feeling like rolling into base camp when you <laughs> got in like there? What was the hot shower, food? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just just a relief that it's 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 done, it's over. Because even as I was coming down the summit um, and getting to camp for that feeling of that that focus, that sense of it's not over yet, is was still very strong. Because we had to get off the mountain safely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and at that point, did you hear about what was going on up at the, like, oh. Camp 4? Like, at what point did you realise? Yeah, that? Cause, I think... Because it was a pretty bad season in terms of the number of yeah. deaths in the air. It was like 15, 16, I forget yeah. the exact number. But, um, yeah, yeah like, at what point did you realise that actually it was... Um, it was um, I think when I got then? back to base camp and then we got onto the internet and um, could see some of the comments or, or like the news circulating about the, the crowds. That's when it was like, oh, okay, didn't know that was happening um, while we were up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what was the view, what was the sort of vibe at base camp as well? I mean, I suppose that there's still like a part, like everyone's that has summited and got back down. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's a feeling of elation, but then there's also, you realize that there's quite a few people that aren't going to make it off the mountain as well like how mm. do you balance that um i th- i mean personally so that there, there were a few deaths that i know um i i personally know about when i was there so one was a friend of mine who who um who was climbing Annapurna, and then he passed away there while i was at everest um so that was in the papers and then on Everest itself, I saw one body that was kind of lying on the slope. Then there was a guy who I had dinner with from another expedition team, and then he passed away at a summit. Then we had a guy from our team who um, passed away after the summit. So like a couple of close like people I actually knew. Yeah. Um, I think that was when it, it hit us that this dying thing is, is real in the mountain. Yeah. So one of the first thing we had to do um, before we got started on all this was to sign like various indemnity forms. And one of the forms was a kind of repatriation form for what you would want um, to do with your body if you were to die on Everest. So that, that was when it really hit that um, this, this is literally life and death. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I think it... it tends to become just part and parcel of it people just know what the risks are that they Mm. are that they're taking so how do you balance it how do you sort of deal with that like (laughs) try uh, not to think about it (laughs) just you don't even consider that like the The possibility yeah um i think there's there's a lot that a person can do to try to keep 
I mean, I'll keep myself safe in that sense and just being very rational about like what are the risks that we can afford to take. And on that, I, I was quite um, very grateful to have a very experienced team of uh, guides and shepherds who were able to also evaluate things um, safety first. Yeah. So the, the risks that we could mitigate and, and kind of manage, we, we tried to do our best with those. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, going through, like talking about all the times that you haven't summited it before, mm. it seems like you're, um, you haven't had that like, crazy summit fever every like you you've been more than willing to turn around and head back down to to keep safety first it seems like that's something that yeah in that in that sense yeah, yeah, yeah. although that night at camp four i was camp well it was a question mark i i think it's it's really difficult to pull back and i can understand why people would just keep going because it's like so near and this is a once a lifetime chance that that kind of push um, to keep going up to the point of beyond rational considerations. Yeah. So I, I totally can understand that yeah. feeling. Yeah, well, absolutely incredible. I mean, one of the <laughs> questions was going to be like, what next? I think given that you've done six of the seven summits, right. I think the, uh, the last, which will be on Antarctic. Yeah, uh, Antarctica, uh, Mount Vincent. Mount Vincent. Yeah, yeah, so that's in the plan for December this year, later on. Yeah. Yeah, and and what's I'm sure that that is um, is a challenging one to knock off just logistically. Um, yes, the logistics of it, and it's um, apparently colder than Everest, so we'll see. Yeah. It's it's not so much a technically difficult uh, technical mountain per se, but it's really the logistics of getting in there and then all that cold. Um, yeah. yeah. Although I was told base camp is quite luxurious. <laughs> Right. Okay. When is yeah. it booked in for? When do you go? Uh, over Christmas. Okay. Yeah. And do you get there from South America or? Yeah, in Chile. Yeah. Yeah, Punta Arenas. Yeah. Okay. And how long's the whole expedition for that one? Um, on paper, it's about two weeks. Uh, in reality, there's always a chance of being delayed flying in and delayed getting out. So. That's it's very weather permitting yeah. as well from yeah. traveling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and that will yeah knock off the seven summits. Which <laughs> so is then just I'm, I'm yeah I'm done <laughs> with the seven summits. Uh, you're done with the seven summits. Yeah. But like then what else is next? Because I'm um, sure someone like not yourself, sure I have, yes. haven't planned yet. Yeah. Um, have you got so if that's not until uh, until Christmas? What have you got um, for the rest of this year as training as like leading um, up to that? So I had a few races planned for this year, but so far they've been cancelled due to the, the virus situation. I was supposed to be in Translantau yeah. um, uh, last month. And then... I was I, actually up in Hong Kong for oh. it, and actually quite a few people still... still yeah, yeah, it. they were doing it um, like by themselves, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that was cancelled. I was supposed to go to China for a mountain, sky mountain run. Uh, that's postponed. Um, so next I'm signed up for UTMB uh, in the PTL the category. PTL, right. So, yeah. so this is like a... Um, what's three, the three person. Three person. And so it's a team race, 300 mm -hmm. odd kilometers? Uh, about 330, I think. 330. Yeah. And it's um, over the same period of time as the, the entire UTMB, UTMB yeah. race, right? So it's seven and a half days. 
yeah. film, yeah. And it's relatively self-supported, actually self-navigation yeah. as well. It's not a marked course. Yeah, it's not marked. You have to navigate. Um, you have to decide like when you want to rest, strategize um, your, your nutrition, etc. So seven and a half days to get back to Shamonix. Excellent. And, and you're doing it because there's two teams going from Singapore, yes, right? Yes, there's a men's team and then there's a women's team. Yeah, I think Abby and Alvin and, uh, and, the men's and Alex. And Alex are yeah. in the men's team. And the then, and then who have you signed up uh, with? So I've got Joanne uh, and Joyce. Yes. And all three of us were, were with the same, um, with the first Everest women's um, training team. Yeah, yeah. I, like I've heard spectacular things about that um, about that race. So that's a that's right. an exciting one. Yeah, I'll, I'll see how far we get to. Like, no expectations. Really, just going in to attempt and and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. All of this begs, begs the question: How do you fund this all? Like, because <laughs> it's fucking expensive. You know, like, it's self-funded. Um, <laughs> what's your day job? Like, what do you? Um, yeah, what do you, what? Um, yeah, and also, how do you fund the expeditions? Because I'm sure they're like that. You're able yeah. to get some degree of sponsorship. Um, so I'm a civil servant, uh, been in the civil service all my life. Um, so currently, I work um, as a consultant, internal consultant. We work in the leadership and organization development space. Um, so we work with the public agencies, all the public agencies in Singapore, and support them in leadership kind of. Um, uh, conversations or change management, transformation, and things like that. Yeah, and you've yeah. always worked in consulting for public uh, for public uh, service. I've always been service. in the public service, just yeah. different portfolios. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, one thing that truly impresses me about Singapore is that actually they are able to attract great talent into the public mm. services because I think I've come from the UK where like the Prime oh, Minister... Oh, not too bad. Well, it's not great. I mean, uh, the Prime Minister is like gets around £150,000 a year and they're <laughs> like running the country. And like when you compare that to most corporate salaries, it's right. uh, certainly CEOs of businesses, then it's... Right you know it's not anywhere near and challenge with that is it doesn't firstly it doesn't attract the best people mm. but then once people are in power they're kind of looking for the payday after they've been <laughs> power because they don't have it when they're when they're in do you know what i mean yeah. so i think um singapore have done a very good job at like Thanks. attracting the best possible talent yeah. into but, the but government i think the uk's got a good civil service as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i just don't think we pay our civil servants <laughs> anywhere near what they deserve. Um, but that's cool. They, and they obviously, they're very supportive about you taking the time out. Um, so for most races, like the ultra runs, um, I'm, I'm a huge scrooge with my vacation leave days. Um, so I spend them very conservatively. I usually try to do the, the red eye, like yeah. flights, turn around, finish the race, fly back, stuff like that. Um, but I was very lucky for for Choyu and Everest. I managed to get um, no pay leave, yeah. so that granted me kind of weeks to finish these two mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure they're they're very supportive about like you as an em, as an employee that sort of the the, raise, the awareness you raise for. for I think in general we are supportive of of people with um, their personal development and such growth like goals we have yeah, yeah. so it's, it's really taking a, a um, developmental stance in these yep yeah um, we've just had uh, International Women's Day oh yes and um, uh, you're obviously a very inspiring woman but are there any are there any women that have 
inspired you over the years? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so Joanne, you know. Yeah. Um, so she's amazing. I knew her when I started with the the women's team, and but she's been in the adventure circuit, um, adventure scene for far longer. Um, one of the pioneer like rock climbers. She started the adventure racing scene in Singapore. Yeah. Um, you should try to interview yeah, her I, and get I, her I on the podcast. Know. She's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and. She's she's really like, I think if you were to say who has built and developed um, generations of climbers and and built the whole scene, she would be one of those women. Um, so Joanne's one. The other one is um, one of my good friends, Linda. So we also were training mates from the Everest team. Um, so Linda tried Everest like many years back as well. Um, so I think from, since 2004, we've had this like strong friendship going on. So these two are the ones I turn to every time I have a crazy idea and I needed to bounce off ideas. And I know that they, um, if anyone could understand, they would, um, rather than shooting down an idea, you know. Yeah. So very supportive girlfriends. And I like Is to- Is Linda still climbing now? Uh, she's not climbing. Um, but I kind of like over the years, seen her grow and, and kind of blossom. So really nice relationship, friendship there. Um, I think if, so, so I like to say that if I were to fall into a crevasse, I'd like to have either of them on the other end of the rope. Yeah. Um, and I know they would do the best things. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, Joanne, I met her when I very first came to Singapore mm. and yeah, she's an extremely Did, did you meet her? Person. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, like, and obviously see her out at Booker Team oh, all yeah, yeah, the yeah, time. Yeah, she's always okay. stumping up and down with her yeah, yeah, 25 yeah. kg pack and, yeah. uh, and ankle weights as well. Um, always with a smile on her yeah. face and just... Always uh, optimistic. Yeah, sort of a bedrock of the both adventure and mountaineering yes. community. Yes. I mean, I'm like excited for her to get a few adventure races going again because I know that she used to organise yeah. quite a few in Singapore poor but oh, um, yep. I, I think she might have a few plans coming I think so, so too <laughs> yeah yeah we'll have to catch up with her soon and also she's planning to do K2 as well yeah. so not sure when but yeah yeah that's where we're planning to get her on she's like oh no K2's been pushed out now I won't come on yet but we'll, yeah, we'll get but her talk on. to her about other stuff she's, she's amazing yeah no yeah. she's phenomenal very cool um, and so like a few quick fire questions for mm. you then are there any books that you um uh, that you have found inspirational and have helped you um yeah so there's this book that i was i had on denali it's called cave in the snow if i got the title right so it's about this um english um one of the first to be ordained as a buddhist nun english woman um who spent 12 years meditating in a cave in northern india at about 4,000 meters high, like altitude. So, sh- so she was like shut from the rest of the world, just meditating. And it was very interesting because um, a friend gave the book to me before I set off for Denali. And I was reading the book because I was stuck at Camp 2 in a blizzard and like in the snow and all that. And here was this amazing story with kind of similar conditions where I wasn't meditating. But... Um, it was just a very inspiring story and the zenness that she had to, to pull through like blizzards and getting trapped without food, water, getting trapped in her cave when the snow kind of like covered everything. Um, I think in a way that gave me that peace of mind when I was at Denali and just trying not to overthink the summit and just, okay, whatever that comes along, we'll deal with it. 
So that book left a What's great. it called again? Cave? Cave in the Snow. Cave in the Snow? Yeah. Okay. How do you, sorry, how do you spell it? Cave? What is cave? Like cave, cave. Cave in the Snow. Cave. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cave yeah. in the Snow. Yeah. Um, cool. We'll, um, we'll look that one up. Um, <laughs> any, uh, any book, um, sorry, any um, uh, kits that you would recommend for under $100? What's That's a, a tough one. I know when you're a mountaineer, like everything costs a fucking fortune, right? I know, <laughs> like, yes. Any boots or anything is like just so, so expensive. But there must be a kind of a, uh, like when you're up at the high altitude that there's like one or two things that you just wouldn't those, live without. Those would actually be the snacks <laughs> that snacks. I bring along. What snacks like, do you take up there with you? Um, anything. So in the mountains, it's, it's less about the nutrition but just the ability to be able to be able to eat what you bring. Uh, so I have stash of like Japanese snacks, um, miso soup, um, gummy gummy bears, the chili yeah, yeah, sweets, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, chips, yeah. and uh, bakwa, the the barbecue pork yes, um, yeah, meat yeah. slices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So those were like. Those keep me happy. Yeah, that's very <laughs> cool. That's very cool. And uh, I suppose a bit of a, um, uh, uh, one of the last closing questions is what's been like your proudest or not, if not the proudest mm-hmm. or one of your most proudest moments, both like, like for myself personally or? and, and, prof- and professionally and like from a work perspective as well. But uh, mm. um. I was thinking about this question and one of the examples that came to mind was um, a corporate trip that I kind of organized and led up to Mount Kinabalu. Uh, that's in Malaysia, Sabah. So this was a corporate trip with colleagues who some of, most of them have never gone like up a mountain in that sense. So training them and leading them on that day and seeing how almost everybody made it up to the summit that was really um, kind of proud. I, I felt proud of them, not so much about myself, but it was a, a nice moment seeing how people made it up there yeah, and, cool. and the kind of effort that they put in to train and, and overcome their own kind of challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great introduction. In fact, one of the uh, my um, co-hosts in the podcast, Rick, is organising the same thing for his team to go and oh, right. uh, climb um, yeah, Mount Kinabalu nice. as well. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, and yeah. then from, uh, I suppose, a personal, like your, um, from your mountaineering ultra running careers or anything mm. that any things that stand out i mean it's hard to really look <laughs> past everest isn't it really but um yeah is there anything specifically that stands out as like where you've like felt so proud of your achievement um when i was able to do what i thought was impossible so three actually three occasions one was um actually for utmb as well when i finished the mala that was my first mala yeah. Um, didn't think I would survive but yeah um, Denali because on when I got to the summit it was it was because people had said that Denali is tougher than Everest well some people have said that so when I stood atop Denali that was really like emotional um, I wanted to cry but I couldn't because then the tears would, would ice up under my, my <laughs> goggles so yeah. I had to like Okay, no tears, no crying. <laughs> yeah, and Choyu actually. Choyu was, was really emotional after that. Um, when I got back down to base camp, I was just like, I suddenly burst out crying, like just tears of joy, relief. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and so, I suppose to finish off, mm. um, any recommendations for, for people that 
are thinking about trying out mountaineering or uh, um, want to go and do their first ultra run or first miler and any any advice um, recommendations for them uh, you mean like how to prepare or just like general like if they want to if, if they want to do it what would be your what would be your sort of like and there's no silver bullet to mm. any of these things but what would be like your advice to people if someone came up to you and said P.S. I want to go and climb an 8,000 meter peak what go. do I do <laughs> <coughs> no um, so I think um, I I would encourage people to form those dreams and aspirations and really not to get stereotyped into certain like beliefs or thinking that I can only do this because I've not I can't do throw you because I've only done Marapik, like what you were saying just now. Or or not falling into those stereotypes that I'm a woman and therefore I can only do certain things. Um and then go to speak to people, friends who care but who know enough to give you realistic kind of feedback um, so that you go into it the, you, you go into that challenge with your eyes open of knowing what to expect so both ends um, breaking that, that self barrier to wanting to do that challenge and then also getting um, proper input on how to get to it yeah I yeah. think that's like fantastic advice for anything in life, whether it be like a, a specific challenge you want to go and do just go and speak to people that have done it and then that will like make it uh, much more accessible, but also make you realize what you need to do to get there yeah, as well. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's... Uh, yeah, because that, there are people who care about us, but who tend to say, no, don't do this because they care too much about us. Yeah. And then there are people who don't really care and, and might say, yeah, and say yes to everything, right, without really knowing the consequences. So find a balance and speak to people who care and also um, know enough to kind of challenge and point you in the right directions yeah yeah yeah, yeah great p.s thank you so thank much you. really good to have you come <laughs> on and like such an amazing achievement can't wait to see you check off the last of the seven summits i can't wait to see you go to show you oh no <laughs> you're gonna put the pressure on me now i've definitely got to get booked in. it's online so now you have to do it <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I've put it out there into the world now yeah. but yeah really excited to see how you're doing uh, utmb you. and ptl as well oh, yeah. it's an exciting okay. race so uh, yeah i'd love to have you back on again in the future thanks yeah p.s thanks for joining us thanks for arranging this thanks tell the truthful story if they ever ask Wow, how impressive is Pierce Sim. I think that her tenacity of going pretty much seven or eight years just attempting all of these peaks and, and not managing to, to summit them, but then just persevering and, uh, and f- coming up with the goal of, of doing the seven summits and just seeing it through is just uh, uh, just such an amazing story. Um, as I say, Rick and I aren't catching up um, uh, for the podcast today, but we are going to um, going to play an excerpt from the Race Base Asia podcast we recorded last year with uh, Michael Ormiston, Stephen Carr, and, uh, and Mr. Nick Timworth. Um, and we've taken a, some excerpt from from Nick. Um, it would have been his birthday last week and, uh, and and would like to continue to commemorate him as one of the stalwarts of the ultra running community in, in Asia Pacific and specifically on Hong Kong. So Nick talks about the genesis of the country of origin 
and just the background of the and his experience of the of the trail running community in uh, in Hong Kong. If you want to listen to the full podcast, it was episode nine of the Endurance Asia podcast, and uh, yeah, they talk a lot about the um, Nine Dragons. Um, obviously, a lot of the races have been cancelled uh, for for this season. We do hope that. I mean, uh, Stephen has sort of said by hook or by crook, the um, the country of origin will go ahead this year, even if it's an unofficial race. Um, we hope that it sure does in in April, um, and uh, it's open for um, for registration right now. So go and check it out. Um, so yeah, here we are, Mr. Nick, Nick Timworth. Like the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Okay, so we just just rewind a second. So Nick, you'd already been organising Country of Origin prior to that, or prior to meeting these kind of. Let's say kind of unofficially. <laughs> unofficially, yes, because because the, because it was more of a social thing at that point. We hadn't, you know, it wasn't like a. It was around the time where things were starting to get a little hectic with the AFCD and getting permits and everything so we said oh look let's just make this a social thing and you know and I originally started it with a guy called Nick Bournemouth who people might know as the race director for um, Ultra Trail uh, Cape Town now um, so he's gone on to, to bigger and better things but it was really just a let's set up an event on Facebook and see if anyone shows up and, um, and what, what was the concept? I think his concept was so, you know, as all, as all great ideas start, it was on a napkin in a bar after a night of drinking. And Nick sort of said, you know, with country of origin, they've got it in rugby, they've got it in tennis, where you, you team up as a national team and, and, you know, it's all about teams going head-to-head against each other. He's like, why not trail running? And I said, that's a bloody brilliant idea. No one else is doing it. Hong Kong seems to be, there seems to be a, a gravitation towards team running in Hong Kong, I think particularly because of uh, Moxham Trailwalker, right? People, people like the concept. It's, um, it, it's a little different because there aren't that many team races in Hong Kong. And so you said, let's, let's just, just do something social and see what happens. And 180 people happened, which was kind of blew us away, right? I remember texting Nick because he was coming over on the ferry in the morning. I was like, is there anyone on there? And he said, mate, we're going to need more water. <laughs> <laughs> Because it wasn't an official race, we didn't have bibs, we didn't charge any money. Oh, no, you did. You collected $30 from everyone on the ferry. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Just, just uh, <laughs> I think you're remembering that wrong. <laughs> but that was for the water that we didn't set up at Pat Kung Ao. Because <laughs> it was actually quite a warm day, so we wanted to, to have something for... We, we were quite clear up front, this is a self-supported run. There are no checkpoints. You, you turn up. You run, you run together as a team. You start together, run together, finish together. That was the concept. You have to stay together. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just a let's let's do it and see what happens. And so that's that's now part of your portfolio. Yeah, that's not too yeah. We're, we're next year will be our fifth year, fifth, fifth year next for year. Country of Origin. And it's turned it's turned into. I mean, I remember the first year, a couple of people wore country colours. Um, now it wasn't, it's. Every I team. mean, you know, and then, oh, yeah, now every team wears the colours, but then you, you well, go Hong to Kong, the... Hong Kong lights dressing up. Yeah, I mean, it's that. almost like the rugby sevens of trail running, you know, some of the outfits that you see. Um, and it is a serious race, but I think it was... I don't remember if it was last year, the year before, we had two starts, so an elite start and then a regular start. And 
I would say 70% are in the regular start. You know, you only get about 30% who choose to be in, in the elite. So um, it's so kind it, of like the season closer in a sense. You know, it's right towards the back end. It's getting a little bit warm. It's getting a bit humid. It's a tough little course. And, and people kind of want to do it with their mates yeah. and kind of go, okay, what, what stupid outfit will we wear this time? <laughs> so it's serious and fun. Serious and fun, yeah. Because you, you don't want it, you don't want it, like, there's always the elite teams, you know, you've, we've had Australia, we've had Canada, we've had Hong Kong, who take it very seriously. But there's that other side, which is the fun kind of, you know, they know there's going to be cold beer waiting and... Yeah, and we, yeah, we always have Guaylo beers, so Guaylo, we, we, yeah. I think hard as nails we might have had, um, had Blue Girl, but we've, we've sort of stepped up from there. It, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't Blue Girl, but I think it was Asahi, which is yeah. It was a now high we're into the craft. The craft. <laughs> craft yeah, every every race of, of race space, you'll get you'll get cold beer at the end. That's just that's what. We're that goes back to what what the guys were saying previously about experiences, right? We've we've all had. I mean, when I came back to Hong Kong, there there weren't that many. There was you know, King of the Hills, and some of the Action Asia stuff, and. There were a lot of other races where it was just people would show up, run, and leave. And the King of the Hills, I mean, what, Keith's done a great job cultivating a community around a shared passion and interest for running, right? It's people show up, they run, but then they stay and they wait afterwards and they kind of hang out and socialize and he always has beer there and some food. And, and it's that kind of experience, not just, don't just come for the run, stay for what happens afterwards, stay for the... Stay for the storytelling and the, you know, the war stories. And so, you know, what we started to realize was, what if we, you know, offered them incentive to stay behind afterwards, right? So this idea of, you know, coffee before the race, beer after the race, food, you know, it just kind of made sense to us because those were the races that we were enjoying at the time. And that's, so we sort of had these benchmarks in terms of what we would aspire to do with, with race base. So yeah, maybe maybe you could just talk us through a bit of your own race background then. So so away from being RDs, what's your own ultra running history? Actually, very very similar to Michael, without all the sort of mad hundred mile stuff. But yeah, I mean, when I came back to Hong Kong, there there were very few choices. Um, so it was you you know you did King of the Hills, which was a great way to discover the trails. Um, Keith, such a great He's a stalwart of the scene, you know. He's been doing it for so long, and but he also he also does the the free China hash as well, which was another sort of more social way, less less competition, more bunch of people getting together for beers. Oh, let's have a run before we do that type thing. <laughs> but his races always always had a, a special kind of feeling to them that were focused more on building a community and just meeting like-minded, crazy people, and that kind of transferred into some of the Action Asia stuff that, that Michael mentioned, and then um, the Hong Kong 100 that Steve and Janet put on, a very, another special race, really, really focused on, on the community. And it just, my interest in, Steve mentioned this before, but getting out of your comfort zone and sort of challenging your preconceptions of what you're capable of, right? So um, similar to Michael in terms of my first 100k was was a trail walker. Someone, I remember at, at one of the hashes, someone coming out saying, "Hey, we, we want a fourth member for the uh, the Oxfam trail walker. Do you fancy it?" I said, "Oh, what's that?" They said, "Oh, yeah, you know, it's just a it's, it's a race in November." I said, "Oh, 
how far is it? They said, 100K. I went, fuck off. You, are you, I'd run about maybe 20K up to that Is that, that the point. one that you ran wearing knee braces? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't exactly knee braces like Forrest Gump style, but, but yeah, let's, let's just say I was, I was less than prepared for, for that. But like Michael, when I finished, I said, I'm never doing that again. And then the next week I was like asking people, Oh, there's this race in November. Do you fancy doing it? It's a bit long, but it's pretty fun. Um, and I was, I was hooked after that. I, I've never been in so much pain as I have in that race. And it's all about... It sort of made me realize, like, you learn a lot about yourself when you're in a miserable, dark pain cave. Stripped down and, yeah. Yeah. Put your head down and suck it up and just challenge yourself and get out of that comfort zone and it's amazing what you're actually what you learn about yourself and what you learn about what you're capable of and again just beating those preconceptions so it's Hong Kong's a great place for that did the knee brace when you finished the OTW did the knee braces like snap off like Forrest Gump <laughs> and you see, you've all kind of touched on the, the fact that Hong Kong's quite a special place for, for running, whether it's the sheer volume of races or... But there, there does seem to be a real community that's perhaps kind of built up over the years since you've been back, Nick. Um, I think it was even there before, yeah. before I came back because, like I said, Keith, Keith with the King of the Hills stuff, had, there was definitely a community there. But even... It, it, would be, um, it would be an injustice not to mention the local groups like King Hang Hiking Club, right? Because they've been around for, for years. They were doing or were involved with the, the King of the Hills before it was the King of the Hills race series, right? In terms of, you know, um, finding the trails and getting people active and involved and, and out on them. So there's, there's lots of, of local hiking clubs that have turned into into sort of more active running and social clubs. But guys like Keith Noyes and Mike Mattis, you know, we, we have a lot to thank them for. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.